talking about discipleship specifically with youth, but as we got into the conversation, we realized, my gosh, this conversation honestly is 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 much bigger than us, right? Because we've, if you don't know, discipleship is one of the most it's one of the defining pieces of of who we are uh, as a church, okay? And and so we were also talking about in the context of, of youth. Uh, but we recognized in our conversation that, honestly, it was, like I said, much bigger than that, that it really does impact, um, really does impact all of the church. And, and so as we began the conversation, we said, hey, let's, let's just, let's, instead of, he was supposed to speak this morning, so instead of, instead of you speaking, why don't we just kind of this dialogue conversation, basically continue our conversation on, and specifically as it relates to, to children, as it relates to youth. Now, let me just go ahead and say this. I heard Ed, where's Ed Payne? I heard you this morning walking and talking about being a better, yes, there you are, coming and learning about being a better dad. But the idea is this. When we come in this morning, the idea is that just because we're talking about children and youth, no one gets to check out, right? You know, sometimes when you, yes, you hear a topic sometimes, you're like, I'm going to check out on that when you start getting on Facebook or getting on your phone and doing stuff. You know you do that, right? Pretend like you're taking notes and something, Steve Leone. And so, anyway, just kidding. Um, that was actually great. That was really more for Steve in, not Steve. So, um, anyway, so the idea is we want to get together and have this conversation with y'all, okay? Have this conversation with y'all of what it looks like as a whole church to be in the area, be in this, this, this role of discipleship for all of our children and all of our youth. And here's the reason why. And those of you who, have, who are college age or are in college or have ever been to college can attest to this, that when you go to college, what this girl says in here, I love it, she's like, when, they, when you go to college, all of the fences come down. Like the barriers that have been a part of your life, right? Like your parents aren't present to tell you what to do. I'll never forget that first morning. I'm like, I don't really have to go to class today if I don't want to, right? Like literally the very first day, I'm like, it's 6.30. For some reason, I signed up for a 7 a.m. class, and I don't have to go to it. Mom and dad aren't here. What are they going to do, right? The fences come down. The parents aren't there. Your friends aren't there. Your youth group isn't there. All the fences come down. They talk in the book about, excuse me, they talk about this idea of, of, that when you go off to college, the idea, or when you leave home, whether you go to college or not, when you leave home, the desire that we have for our, our children and our youth is when they leave, when they leave, quote unquote, our safe fences, that they will have a sticky faith that will go with them every day of their life. And the idea, what they, and what they, and what we talk about, what we're going to talk about this morning is this type of sticky faith that when you sit at the table, when you, when you kind of leave our, our fences and you leave us and you kind of go out there and you're sitting at the table that's full of all of these experiences and life experiences and opportunities, that the voice of faith won't just be one of the voices that you're listening to, but it'll be the primary voice that defines everything else. And so we've been reading a book together called Sticky Faith, right here, Sticky Faith. Okay, Some of you may have heard of it. Uh, but it's a great book, and the book obviously it's it's written and geared towards towards the church in general. Say, how do you church body of Christ? How do you disciple your children, or basically raise your children up? Right? How do you disciple or raise your children, your youth, up in such a way that when they go off to college and the fences come down, they're not going to be perfect, but that they are going to ultimately make wise decisions based on the faith that's so sticky that it can never leave them. And so this morning we're going to dive into it, but let me just make this point, and I didn't make this clear until I needed to, that when 
I'm talking, we're going to talk a lot to parents. But one of the primary things that we, that we read in Sticky Faith is this, is that, yes, parents, we're going to talk about this, have a primary role of discipleship in their children's lives. But one of the things it says in here that I think is so profound, it says the, the, the number one thing we found that ultimately kept faith sticky for college students and college-age kids going all the way through was that they had a group of adults at their church that they're in relationship with who continually talked to them, invested into them, Facebooked them, Twittered them, text messaged them, whatever kind of contact, some level of contact, so that they know that they're not alone in the world. And so what I'm telling each of you today, I don't care if you have kids or not, this message is for you because like we had a little Tatum, Right here, still in James's arms, it takes the entire body to raise her. And so this morning, that's what we're going to dive into. And so I'm going to ask Timothy, he's going to start us out in our conversation, just kind of painting the picture for us of what's going on today in the world of children and youth, and this maybe some things that we need to know as we enter into the conversation. So take it, Timothy. And Twitter, for those of you who don't know, is social networking. Yes. Now, some people are like, what's a tweeter? <laughs> Um, so I, I find that it helps uh, when you begin conversations like this to kind of start with a general picture and then kind of hone it in to where we are. Um, so I think it would be good for us to start with sort of where youth ministry is, student ministry is right now as a whole. Because um, if you don't pay attention to it, like if you don't have my job, then the most you interact with youth ministry is like dropping your kids off or getting emails from me, but um, it actually is, is pretty interesting. Um, recently, there's been a lot of statistical research done, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land in the middle of where they say we are. So they say that after our students graduate from high school, move out of our homes, leave our church, and go to college or work or whatever, um, that 70% of them will put their faith on a shelf, and half of those will never pick it up again. So to give us an idea of what that looks like, Sydney and Andrew and Avery, y'all stand up. Josh, stand up. Um, Josiah, stand up. What is that? Five? Uh, Luke, Levi, Emma, stand up. Both Levi's, that's great. So we got four on this side and five on this side. We need one more. And, And Isabella, you stand up. All right, so we're going to pretend that these represent our youth group, okay? Um, So what's going to happen is we're going to pretend that they're all seniors, and so they leave, and their freshman year of college, this is what happens. Um, Everybody but the Llewellyns sit down. So sit down, sit down. Those are the only ones we have left, um, which is not that much. Y'all can sit down now, too. Um, Because what happens is they're, they're finding out that students get out of this, and these Protective barriers come down, and they, they find that intellectually, um, the, what the experience of religion they had doesn't hold water. It can't stand up to whatever they're learning or whatever. Um, ethically, they don't think it's the best to tell them what to do and how to live their life. Um, psychologically, it doesn't provide them with what they need for meaning, value, worth, and definition of their life. So they, they go to whatever's around, um, and usually... Uh, Jesus is not it. And um, 
they made an interesting point, and I, I think that's what they think, and I, I agree with them why that is. It's because we don't, we don't actually give them Jesus. We give them youth group. Um, so when they get there, they're like, oh, man, there's no pizza party to sustain my walk with Jesus. There's no summer camp. There's no youth retreat. There's no this, or there's no event, program, professional, and a place to go do my faith. So I don't care anymore. Um, I think the root of this, one thing they talk about in the book, um, is that we, we give them youth group or whatever. But in this youth group, they get what they call a gospel of sin management. Um, so instead of giving them Jesus, which actually causes them to love and serve and grow in relationship with him, we give them rules, checklists, stuff to do. Um, and this is really, really, really detrimental. Because um, they, they highlighted three things in here. One that I think is foundational, and two that kind of build off that. The first thing, what I'm going to go ahead and get into now, is this idea of a sticky gospel. And then from that, you get a sticky identity and sticky relationships. And you're going to get tired of hearing me say sticky. Uh, sorry, it's just it's the lingo of the book, so sorry ahead of time. Um, and what they say very early on is our students get this thing they call the gospel of sin management, which is, if you don't do bad things and do good things, then you are good and Jesus will love you and you'll be okay. Um, and so then the question happens, then, then the question is poses, well, what happens when they do bad things and don't have anyone to reel them back in? What happens when they realize that maybe the bad things that they were told not to do actually make them feel good? Um, that relationships they were told not to enter into give them fulfillment. Um, when they don't do something they were supposed to do, and they, and they actually feel all right without it. Um, and so when these fences come down uh, and the checklist goes away, there's no actual relationship there to sustain them. And um, so bringing this into us, I mean, I think we just need to be honest about where we are. Um, I'm a realist. I'm not a romantic or an idealist. Uh, Jesus said very clearly that the, the way to life is narrow. The gate is narrow, and few find it. Um, and I don't think our youth group is a special exception. Um, I think if we're honest, we know that we have students ranging from burning passion for Jesus to indifferent. Um, and so I think it's very important for us to go ahead and start discussing these things um, to, to get a, a picture and a plan for where to go. Um, and so and this idea of sticky gospel, the, one, the, the thing that I thought was pretty compelling, and we, Steve and I talked about it a lot, was... Rather than setting up fences, so we have this pasture that we call Christian living, and we set up a nice fence around it and say, if you're inside the fence, if you do things to keep yourself inside of the fence, if you do the right things, pray the right prayers, sing the right songs, and keep yourself in this little marked-off area, then you're, you're good to go pretty much. Um, and that's just, that's just not sustainable. It's not healthy. It's hurtful to the souls of our students. And so what they propose that we do, instead of giving them this gospel that says, do and don't and all that other stuff, um, is that we get what's called a centered approach. And, and an easy picture for this is um, there, there are cattle herders in places that don't have a lot of water. Um, so it's, they found out the best thing to do for their cattle to keep them on their ranch and around where they needed to be was not to build a fence. It was just impractical, too big. So they dug a well. And what, what, what the cattle, what happened is the cattle learned that they couldn't go too far away from the well or they'll die. They won't be able to find water in the, in the landscape they're in. And so they have to stay a distance so they can get back to the well. 
And, and so what they propose and what Steve and I have talked about at length is how do we not create bigger, stronger, prettier, more lit up fences? Is How do we consistently point back to this well? How do we... Um, how do we show our students that life is not fully meaningful, fully developed, um, and, and fully fulfilling? Sorry, that was kind of a tongue twister. If you stray too far away from this well, um, and, and we kind of came to an interesting conclusion that it actually doesn't start with our students. Um, it, it actually starts with us, that, that we are the ones who model what it looks like to live dependent on this well, on this source of life for us. Um, and so this, this is where we can kind of enter, our, enter into our conversation. Because um, I look at it, Steve, and, I, and, and in, our conversa- in having conversations about this, I, one thing I realize is that being a parent, talking to my own mom, to Randall, to my parent, to everybody, the one thing that came across is that parenting is hard, is that parenting, parenting is the hardest thing you'll ever do. Um, no one said. No one said. Well, it's difficult, but my job or my marriage or this. Everybody said it's the hardest thing you will ever do. And I mean, I, I get it. I mean, it is. I mean, you know, I said this earlier, but if you're a, like a Christian mom, I feel for you. Like I do. I mean, y'all look at Pinterest. You have any idea how condemning Pinterest is for a woman? I mean, it's like, oh, my gosh, I can't make that out of burlap and a reclaimed wood barrel. I'm not a good woman. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, like, that's what it is. I'm like, I'm, I, that's not it, I promise. Or, you know, uh, I, you know, if you're familiar with it, there's a lady named Ann Voskamp. She, uh, she lives on this farm and homeschools four dozen kids and all this other stuff, and she writes these beautifully articulate articles and all this other stuff. And if you think that's, like, what you have to be to, like, aim at to be a good mom, like, that'll crush your soul in a heartbeat. Uh, so first off, take a deep breath, and you don't have to be a Pinterest mom, okay? Um, so how, do, how does this idea of, of not rule-following, um, not sort of filling out a checklist, but living in in a loving relationship with Jesus. First, not, not, let's not start with our students, but actually form the identity of parents so that they can then model it for students. I have no idea. Um, no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, it's a, I think it's one of the, it's a great question. I think the, um, when I look at, you know, being parents, let me just say this. I recognize I'm a parent of a, up to a 10-year-old. I have yet to really get into the difficult years, right, the junior high, middle school, high school, getting to college, sending your kids off. Like, kudos to all of you who have already gone through that. Blessings. We come in humility and say, we know we have no idea what we're talking about, really, but we're going to do our best, right? I don't even have kids. Yeah, exactly. You're right. even worse than I am. So, um, right. okay, so, <laughs> so all that to say for us, then, that, as we come into this, I'm just playing. For this, as we come into this moment, we recognize that you know we're we're speaking things we've talked about, we've theoretically talked about things we've read into. And so I want to kind of share my thoughts, but I would encourage you as you have thoughts even after this, go to go to lunch with people. Right? I, I think this real practical thing. Those who've already been there and gone through it, befriend people who are not quite there yet, and spend serious time with them. Like, literally, I, I'm asking that if you've already gone through it, if you're in your, you know, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and you see someone who's toting kids, and they have the bags under their eyes, and they're like, and kids screaming, 
don't go, oh, I've already gone through that. I'm so glad I'm not there anymore. Walk over there with empathy and compassion and pick up their child. Walk them out and say, can I just meet with you this week? Seriously, because I'll say we need that, okay? For those who have young kids, we need that. Please come alongside us. All right, so but I think, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, that I look at for us, number one, is parents, uh, and I would just say this for, for, the, for the youth to hear this, parents don't get it completely and understand fully their relationship with Jesus, like, they're still a, a work in progress. So they're, like, if you were to put it in the idea of, like, a portrait or a painting, like, if you were to look at their, their canvas, they're still a painting in work, right? Which basically means they don't have all the answers. They're not always right, but they're more right than you think that they are, right? But, and, they, and they're still trying to figure things out, and so I think the first place that I want us to begin when we're talking about parents and parenting and, and our role and our kids' lives, all this kind of stuff, parents, number one, is just to, give your, just to give yourself a break, right? Like, give yourself a break. Give yourself grace. That's grace. Another way of saying grace. God's, God's blessing you even though you haven't deserved it, right? That, you don't, that we're not going to have all the answers. And so in youth, you can't expect us to have all the answers, that reality is the greatest lesson I ever learned in life about my dad is he's just as flawed as I am. That he has just as many questions that I have. And that he is still wrestling with faith, just like me. And when I began to have that dialogue, and all of a sudden I began to dialogue and our relationship went to a different place, is I'm like, you're just like me, and you have insecurities just like me and questions just like me. And so what I would say, parents, is first and foremost when parenting, give yourself grace, give yourself a break, that you don't have to have all the answers, you're not going to have it all figured out, and you don't have to because you were never meant to be Jesus to your parents. He's completely capable of being Jesus himself. And so we have to begin to learn to do then is say, Jesus, every day I'm needy, I'm desperate, and I can't be you to my child. I need you to be you, but help me to be the best parent that I can be. And so what that then looks like then, and this looks different for the age of your kid and the maturity level of your kid, right? Like it would be different from talking to my 9-year-old Sarah, who's wonderful and beautiful, to, to your 16- and 17-year-old child who's already experiencing much more of life, having this open dialogue. And so the great thing that we want to open up then as parents and the thing that we want to give you freedom in is to sit down and and have honest dialogue with your children, even about the things that you wrestle with. And so if something happens and they say, why is is this bad thing happening? You don't have to go, well, Jesus is good. Let's turn over here to Luke chapter 6 and remember the goodness of God while inside you're going, I really have no idea why this is happening. You just look at your child and say, you know what, I don't know. And all of a sudden, guess what just happened? An honest moment. Who do you enjoy talking with the most? The ones who are honest and share their struggles so you can identify with them or the ones who are completely holier than you and always tell you what you're doing wrong because they're doing it right? And your children, guess what? They're human beings and people. And guess what, youth? You're Parents are human beings just like you. And so the place that we want to, you know, in this side, in the conversation we've had is we, with parents, we want this honest and open dialogue to begin happening of not lecturing. How many of you 
parent, like now who are a little older can look back, how many of you would say that lecturing from your parents worked really well in raising you? Right? How many of you parents now still lecture your own children and think that they enjoy it? There are two honest people. Yes. Ray and I are raising our hands. <laughs> Look at that Levi up and raising his mom's hand. Awesome. So, <laughs> perfect. That's, yeah. definitely does not do and so, But here's the deal. We, we all, so, the idea for us is simply this. We want to give you freedom to not have to be perfect. But parents, we want to say, listen, we just want you to begin to dialogue in honest conversation of even feeling free to be honest about your struggles. I mean, you know what I mean in that, right? I mean, I could go into story. I'm not, I don't need to go into stories. That would be bad. But there are just certain things you should not tell your kids, right? Maybe sin issues or struggles that you have, right? I'm just saying. But as it relates to honest questioning, you know I'm getting at, right? Honest questioning and honest dialogue, getting into about faith and about Jesus and about questions and about concerns and things. Why? Because there's honesty that happens in that moment. All of a sudden, we begin to find that you're able to have conversation and dialogue with your kids. And we want you, that's the thing we're looking at and beginning to dive into. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Yeah, that was really good. Um, Thanks, you. It's like you're a pastor or something. Um, so I'm your boss. You have to say that, right? <laughs> yes. Um, one of the, I think one of the things that um, as I'm sort of entering into adulthood, notice I didn't say I was an adult. I said I'm entering in a, into adulthood. Um, one of the things that I, I find is most difficult to sort of consistently keep in front of me is that I am not how much money I make. Mm-hmm. I am not what kind of house I have. I'm not what kind of car I drive. I'm not what I control. I'm not what people say about me. Because I have a relationship with Jesus, that is the primary identifier for me. That's how I identify myself, by my relationship with Jesus. That I'm undeserving of his love, yet he loved me anyway. So that gives me confidence and security and assurance and helps me to hold all those other things in good perspective, in healthy perspective. Um, So for sort of connecting the dots, um, I, I I want you to answer this and then I'll... We'll see how that fits for what I want to say about our students. See if um, I'm right. See if I see oh, I know you're going to be right. Again, you're my boss. Um, how, I mean, practically as a dad and as a person who is in charge of people and, you know, all, the, all this other stuff, how do you or how you can say you have a friend? I don't know. I don't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, what, what, what are struggles or what are things that can be overcome by sort of Getting this first, you know, sort of the idea of yeah. um, the uh, of the gospel. We'll just say gospel, so I don't have to say yeah. sticky a million more times. Um, that can then actually model healthy identity for our children. Yeah, or, I say children, yeah, I students. You. I don't like to sort of be condescending. Yeah, children or students. I mean, because we're talking, we're talking just even young children too. Um, yes. So I would say this. Uh, one of the things, you know, we talked, I think, I can't remember if you mentioned earlier, but this guy named uh, Christian, Smith, Christian Smith, he's, a so, he's in the book, and he's a sociologist from Notre Dame who just studies family and specifically looked at youth. And, and, he, and he said very succinctly, and I just want to read this to you. It's gonna, it may sound a little condemning, but it's not. It's just very convicting, and it should lead us to hope, and we'll get to that in a second. He says this. He says, when it comes to kids' faith, parents hear this. When we when we comes when we when it comes to kids' faith, parents get 
what they are. As in, basically, you get who you are, who you portray, and who you model your, who, who, how you model your life. And the idea is, he gets that and says, listen, he says, he says one, and you all understand this, that people, people may say certain things to us, but it's ultimately what their life portrays that really we learn from. And so what he's getting at, he's saying, our children's faith, then, is, is defined not by what we say to them, but by what we do. And so when I heard that, I thought to myself, my children are doomed. I mean, literally, right? It's like, doomed. Like my mind going, doomed, doomed, doomed. Like, oh, my gosh, right? And it was literally this whole moment. But then here's the thing. This brings it back to the hope, because this is what Timothy's getting at, I hope, I think, is that in my own life, if I literally sit there and say, my children are doomed, which that was my first thought. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm a terrible parent. They're going to be messed up for a life, right? I recognized then I was walking in my own path of sin management or a duty that would make God pleased with me. Because what was happening in the moment was like, they're doomed because I know how bad I am. And so then I recognize what I'm modeling for my children then is this idea of, I am not doing what I'm supposed to be doing for God to be a good parent, so they're going to be doomed for life. I then recognize, I have then gauge my life of effectiveness as a child of God, not based on what he thinks of me, but did I sin today? That's what it means, sin management. That I gauge how effective I am as a Christian by whether or not I looked at porn today, watched rated our movies, I drank too much, smoked pot, smoked cigarettes, whatever it may be. And I didn't do that. I wasn't mean today to my neighbor. I'm a good Christian. And so I realized then that my own life that I was modeling was one of sin management rather than effectiveness of a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus. And so what I was modeling for my own children then and how I talked to them was sin management. Did you do what you were supposed to do today? And if you did, I'll be pleased with you. But if you didn't do what you were supposed to do today, hmm. And so what I recognized then in my own life as I was modeling, I was modeling something that I did not want to model. And so the hope came in this, it was this, condemnation says doomed, 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 but conviction leads me to hope in Christ says, no, son, I love you. You were mine and I am your father and I can move through you as you learn about me. And so the hope then was found here that, Father, as I learn to love you and learn to receive love and grace and mercy, as I, as I come to this place, God, with you that I need to come to, that I, gotta, I just want to receive from you this place of, of peace and of joy and of, and of confidence in your love for me, as I live in that place, then that's what I'll model for my children. And I will create this environment of openness in honesty, in dialogue, where I will love them as you loved me. Isn't that what we all want from our relationship with Jesus? This place of, like, I mess up, but he opens his arms when I walk back into his presence. But how often when I do that, I, I see him like this, with his finger like the, the finger wag, right? And he never does that. He loves me. 
Yes, he will convict me and say, you can't do this anymore, son, because that's going to kill you, right? Don't do that. But he says it in such a way that draws us back into relationship. So my point in all of this, and it answered your question, is what I believe God's speaking, and even through this book to me, is I have to have my own intimate relationship with Jesus so I can model it for my children so that when they come into my presence, having royally messed up, I don't wag the finger or shake my head, but I look at them in love and I embrace them and say, we can never do this again because it's going to kill you. But we receive them in open, honest dialogue and in conversation. And the hope happens for us as we have our own intimate relationship, personal relationship, our own modeling of relationship with Jesus. So I want to model for them what that relationship looks like. And that will affect then how I receive them. Because remember, Scripture says, love your neighbor or love your child as you love yourself. And the reason we wag the finger at them is because that's how we receive love from God. We let him wag his finger at us in our own mind, even though he never does. And so what God's speaking this morning to us is he wants to release us. Not, to, not so we, Obviously, not so we can go and have freedom to sin, right? Paul says very clearly, you can, your freedom just cannot lead you to sin. But that I don't sin, not because I was told not to, but because I love him too much to do it. And that's what we want to get into. Nice. Um, and I think that's really important. The reason I even asked that question is um, I'm going to start well behind my point and work up to it. Um, the thing I notice the most about our students as far as what, where they need Jesus a lot, or the most I'll say, um, is, is in their insecurity. Um, I feel like there could be 10 or 12 or however many different problem areas for individual people. But I feel like the, the big struggle with the age groups I deal with from 6th grade to going to college is insecurity. Um, who am I and how do I define that? What is my place in the world? Um, the interesting thing as I'm getting older and I'm having conversations with people who are a, a little older um, is that that doesn't really go away. Yes. Um, we continually grapple with, struggle with, who am I and how do I decide this? Um, I, think, I, mean, I think your answer is really powerful and actually very important for us because um, if as leaders, as adults who have influence in the students' lives, we find who we are, our place in the world by you know, our job, our house, our car, our relationships, or whatever – um, that is what, whether we realize or not, we smuggle that into all of our relationships. Right? Um, so if you, like, I mean, real simple thing, like, if if you don't have as great of a boss as I do, and, um, you know, they're always, they're forever hounding you on a task list on um, how up-to-date you are on completing projects, assembling lists, whatever it is, um, then it could be, if that's your who you are and where you derive significance from, odds are the conversations you have with your kids center on, how they're doing what they're doing. You know, how are your grades? How's your practices? You know, give me your checklist and let me see how you're doing. Or if it's, you're, you have sort of a success paradigm of if I amass enough stuff, 
then all the people in the cul-de-sac in my neighborhood will think that I am important and I will have, you know, a, a good, you know, outward image with these people. Then you're probably going to drive your kids to be really successful so they can gain the same kind of life. Um, because, I mean, the thing I'm learning is, is it's way more competitive now academically and athletically, even relationally, than it was even when, you know, 10 years ago for me. Um, you know, if you're not busting it to make good grades, if you are not putting in tons of hours for sports or whatever, then you're just going to get left behind. And seeing as how those are sort of the, the prime identity factors for most kids, you, you don't know who you are you're, or, you're, or you're less than. So it's really important that we um, begin, even as a church, the, the thing that struck me a lot in this book is the emphasis on grace. Um, and, and as adults, pseudo-adult I am, um, we, we have a really difficult time with grace because we live in a world where you are rewarded based on how you perform. You, you get what you earn. If you, if you work 55 hours, you're going to be further ahead of the guy that works 40, you know? Um, and that's just not the economy of the kingdom of God. Um, Steve, Steve said, you know, if I, if I look at my relationship with Jesus based on what I have done or not done, then you're always going to feel, feel, feel condemned. In Galatians, Paul says when you live that kind of life, you're under a curse. And, you know, you feel all – anyway um, – and so it's very important that we get this straightened out so that then our kids, our students, those that we've been put in stewardship over, begin to understand that they're the primary piece of their identity, the core of who they are, is the grace shown to them in Jesus. And nobody can affect that. You know, bad grades, which we, don't, we want our students to make good grades, can't affect it, though. So they can feel the want to do better, but it doesn't crush them. It's not an ultimate thing. Um, so I, l- let me ask you this. Um, Obviously, you know, work life, professional life is, is competitive and it's difficult and there's a lot of pressure. Um, where pretty much whatever position in, you're looked at to keep up a certain standard of performance and build towards increasing competency in your field. You know, so if you are, I don't know, I can't think of a job right now, that's pretty pathetic. Um, whatever you are, um, you need to grow in whatever the indicators are that you're doing a good job. Um, and if you don't, then you are not, you know, one of the main people in your field. Um, so as parents if, if, or, or adults or whatever, we look at ourselves as the one who are supposed to be guiding and shepherding our children. Um, how do we go about looking at ourselves and saying, well, I, I don't have all the answers, or even more, how are we comfortable with leading our kids in doubt or in areas that might cause them actually emotional distress or suffering. Because, I mean, I, I think everybody, their, their go-to mode is to protect, you know, those under them from that. But so, so how, would you, how would you walk through that if, if we're saying that our significance and our worth as a parent is not in our ability to have it all figured out? Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I think uh, I think one of the one of the things that that I think as parents, and this is really hard for us to do, we have to allow our kids, uh, no matter what age, to learn responsibility, right? But the learning of responsibility sometimes comes through hardship. 
and maybe even comes through a degree of suffering. It's painful. It's painful stuff, right? And so as parents, obviously, our primary role in our children's life, we want to guard them. We do want to protect them. God's entrusted us to them. But I think at the same time, one of our things we have to recognize is that we, we, can't, we can overprotect our children. You know, it's one of those, I heard a phrase from a guy named Tim Elmore spoke several years ago at, a, at Catalyst. He talked about the IY generation, which is kind of this youth age and youth age, college age. He said, he said, he created this phrase called the helicopter parent. He said that the parents who just ho- hover over their children all day long to protect them from anything bad that may try to come in. If anything does, they immediately rip them out of the situation, right? And create create these kids who have what they've defined now. It's called extended adolescence. They say now that children become adults at 28, where when you were a kid, you all became adults when you turned 18, when you left home. But now because there's such an extended adolescence of the hovering protective parent, mother, father, whatever it may be, that literally we are overprotecting our children. They're never learning responsibility. They're never actually becoming the adult that they're supposed to be. And I don't know about you, but I hear stories all the time from people who are your age and older who say, yeah, I'll never forget when I turned 18, my dad did this. And what they, what they were saying was basically I was forced to become responsible, Right. And I may fall on my face in the midst of it. But let me tell you something. The idea is that when I, and this is something much harder to, and you could tell stories, y'all could, right? Much harder to actually play out, you know, practically speaking versus theoretical. But theoretically speaking, think of this, that, that the only way your children will ever, and our children will ever learn that we can't provide everything for them is they have to lean into Jesus and trust him for something. And if we only provide and be Jesus to them, well, listen, we're not supposed to be Jesus to our children. We're supposed to be parents to our children because Jesus is completely capable of being Jesus himself. And so we live our lives then in obedience to Jesus, which means you have to have a relationship with him to hear him, So you know what to be obedient to do in situations that are difficult because your children have to grow up and they may have to suffer, but suffering produces perseverance and perseverance hope. And so the idea is then for us, when we don't know the answers, then we we don't try to play Jesus. We don't try to hover over them and protect them, but we allow them to face the consequences of their decisions, no matter how difficult that may be. And our job is not to overly protect unless God says to come and do this, right? Why? Because we're in a relationship with him. He's leading us, whatever it may be. But the idea for us, again, this is much, diff- much more difficult practically speaking than theoretical. But theoretically, I-, I believe our goal is to allow our children. They-, they talk about that in here, that you don't want to let them suffer too much or they become disconnected and distant and hate you forever, right? And we don't want to overprotect them because then they never actually mature. But there's a place of responsibility facing consequences, and suffering that actually allows them to mature. Because the point is, we want them to have a sticky faith. And a sticky faith occurs. And this one person in the book, I can't quote it exactly, but they said, when I left and went to college, my parents, they left me, and they loved me, but they let me call and have dialogue with them. But I was forced to figure out for myself who I was, what I believed about Jesus, and I did that through 
It's almost some bad decisions ultimately that I made, but that ultimately led me to him. But the entire time I had my parents who would always dialogue, always love me, and always be there for me. And, and, and the idea, and I would take this to the next level, and I want you to hear this, and then it's about time for us to go, but we're going to talk next week, just real clear. We're going to talk again next week about all this and go real practical, okay? Literally, I'm going to give you lists of things that you can do to be a great parent. So I want to encourage 50 you. 50 copies of this. Yeah, 50 book. copies that we bought that will be here on Tuesday, be available on Sunday. You can buy it for 8 bucks on your Kindle, right, on Amazon.com. I'm, we're selling it for 10 here at Vintage. We're buying it for 12 you get $2 discount, okay? We're going to lose money on it, all right? That's how much we love you. It's just easier to sell something for 10 than 12 right? So anyway, but the idea is this. Parents, responsibility, we have to do this, but I want you to hear this. One of the things they talk about in this book, and I may have already mentioned but I'll say it again. They said that when, when children, when students leave, that one of the that they found across the board, one of the, most, the primary, if not the primary things apart from parents, the primary thing that kept their faith sticky was adults coming alongside of, emailing, texting, doing everything, connecting with these students because they recognize they're not alone in the world. And so that our responsibility then is, as the body of Christ, is to come alongside of parents, to invest into them, to care for, to come along parents who are struggling. I mean, I, how many, I, if we could raise hands, how many parents I've talked to and hear myself who are struggling to raise their children in a, in a God-fearing way to be obedient to the Lord, right? Because they're like, I'm definitely ain't Jesus to my kids, right? Because I don't know how to be that. I'm just doing my best, hanging on by a shoestring, Right? But what if we come alongside of these parents and we're parenting alongside of them? How many of you had somebody in your life, who could, as an adult, who could say things to you, whether it's a coach or a teacher or a godmother, godfather, somebody who could say something into your life that you could never receive from your parents? Raise your hand. You have people who could speak into your life in ways that, yes, 70 to 80% of the people in here. You're supposed to be those people for our youth and our children. That's why God brought you here and put you in a relationship with our kids. You, don't, you can't come just on Sunday morning and expect your kids to get what they need. No, you have to get a network around you. They talk in this book, they, and you're going to read it, chapter 6, that blew us away. It's called the 5 to 1 ratio. There are five adults to every one child at church. I don't care what it looks like. They told one story. I, I'm going to go over, but this is a great story, so I apologize. I have one more thing I want to say, so we're going to go a little bit over. Okay. They told the story when these kids turned 13. Uh, was it graduated from high school? When they, were, when they were going into high school. Going into high school. The parents would find five men, these boys, okay, five, find five men, and said, we want you to go out with our son for the entire day. I don't care if you take him camping, if you take, I don't care if you take him shopping, if you take him fishing, if you take him to the game. Take him to work. Take him to work, right? Take him to work, take him to experience real life. Spend the entire day with him, but we ask somewhere along the way that you're giving them a life lesson, preferably something about Jesus and your relationship with Jesus. And they did that. These five men, within a short period of time, took, this, took each boy and invested one full day into them. And they talked about the, how powerful that was, that these men then were continue, continuing to text them, connect with them, to shoot them, shoot them a letter, or whatever it may be, just to let them know they were there and part of their life. And the idea we talked about is that how powerful 
Would that have been in our own lives? How much we desired that? I guarantee you, every one of you in here would have totally enjoyed having something like that for you. Whether you graduated from going off into college, I don't care. It could be any time of your life, a special birthday. But somewhere where men were coming along, women were coming alongside of girls, and just being a five to their one so that when they show up on Sunday morning, they're hugged by an adult who knows them by name and asks them questions because they actually care. You want to have sticky faith in our church, and that has to begin happening. And as we're sort of concluding, Steve has, um, has a really, I don't know how to say this, but ministry time is something that I would say everyone needs to participate in today. Um, and sort of to segue into that, um, I like to say something to students and to parents. Um, I'll start with parents. Um, when Scripture talks about parenting, it says don't exasperate your children. Um, here's something we need to realize. Like, our students are cooler than we think they are. They're, they have friends. They have valid interests. They have demands on their time that are real. Um, and in that, th- this should produce in us an openness to them in their stage of life. Um, I think one of the great sort of I don't want to say travesty, but a great problem we have is that we value students for who they will become, not who they are at the present time. And so let's, let's decide that we are going to say, I, I may not have answers, but I'm open to you, my daughter, my son, or son or daughter's friend, where you are as you are. That, that's what Jesus did for us. I mean, Romans 5, Ephesians 2, very clear. He came to us when we didn't have it all together. Um, so parents, um, just listen to your kids. I mean, it's, it's, it would go a long way. And kids, um, your parents are not as cool as you are, but you made them that way. Um, you did. The way your parents got to not be cool is working 60 hours a week to pay for your clothes and your food and your shoe and all that other stuff. Um, and while we've, talk, we've kind of strayed away from earning and performance, your parents have earned your respect. They earned it, straight up. Um, so same thing to you. Listen to them. Because they, I mean, they earned it. Um, I meet with the seniors on, on Mondays, and, and right before they all graduated, we talked about what was the greatest sort of point of formation in their life, and they talked about their parents Um, And so, students, I want to say one more thing before Steve closes out. There's going to come a time in your life when you'll probably be alone, you'll probably drive it in your car, sit in your house, whatever it is, and you'll realize that your parents are the smartest people you ever knew. You'll realize that that you had a relationship with them that you could never have with anyone else. And I'm asking you, because I've experienced it, I'm asking you to start doing what you have to do now so when you have that realization... It'll be one of celebration, not one of utter regret. So open your hearts to your parents. Listen to them. They have great stuff to say. And for both of you, I'd say if you're failing, Jesus has grace for you. Jesus is gracious and merciful. And if you're broken, if you find that your heart is, is barely there, he's not going to turn you away. If you're bruised, he's not going to break you. So Steve kind of closes this out. Be, be willing to come, not just to Jesus, but to each other this morning. That's good. So this morning for our ministry time, what we want to do is this. We want to invite the families to come. 
and take communion together. We'd, we'd love for you to come along. It's going to take a little while because a lot of families are a bigger service, but uh, to take communion quickly as a, as a family, and we, if, you're, if you'd like to do that, or at least take some time and ask you to pray together. Uh, if your family's not here, your kids aren't here, then just take some time with your husband and wife, pray for your kids, or if it's just you by yourself, pray for your kids, or, if, uh, or, or just pray in general for families. Uh, we want to be a place where families are honored, where they're growing, where there's sticky faith that's happening, okay? And so we're just going to invite you to come in ministry time this morning and just administer to your family. Listen, if there is someone here who's like college age or a young adult sitting by themselves, invite them to take communion with you if they're here by themselves. Invite them to take communion and pray over them, right, as a spiritual parent over them. The idea is I want you to tear down walls. Listen, Older adults, college students, and youth aren't as scary as you think they are, okay? They want to be loved by you. They really do. They want to be loved, and they may look at you weird, but it's because they're scared of you because you're, they, they think that you're going to point your finger at them and tell them that, that you don't like what they're wearing and what their hair is and the things that are on their skin and the, tat and the things in their ears, all that kind of stuff, right? But instead, just love them. Encourage them. And invite them to take communion with you. Pray over them. Okay? So with that, let me pray for us, and then we'll enter into our ministry time. Father, we thank you.